You're listening to episode 119 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And it is the 21st of October 2020 here in Norwich as the episode's going out. So how are you doing, Steph? I'm not too bad, thank you. Yeah, not too bad. How are you? Uh, Good. Yeah, we have a a slightly relatively quieter period, don't we, at the moment? We do, yeah. Still, I mean, there's always lots going on with us. We're never never truly quiet, are we? But since uh, Norwich Crime Writing Festival was over and we've started getting our Writer's Toolkit workshops out, which are online for this season, it's, yeah, we're in a cooling down period, I think, leading up to Christmas. Yes, exactly. And we had a lovely book club session last night. Oh, which, brilliant. Which Flo held and talked about Rendang by Will Harris, which is the, the book that they've been reading. So yeah, if you're, if you're interested in joining our book club, you can find a link down in the show notes. You just need to head over to our Discord channel and join in the chatter over there. And if you catch this episode just after it goes out and before Tuesday, the 27th of October, make sure you join us for a quick online free drop-in writing session. Uh, So it's Tuesday, five o'clock until 6.30pm GMT. And this is taking place over on our free Discord community platform, which is where writers of all levels and all stripes from all over the world come together. They put aside some writing time in the comfort of their own home and uh, do some writing and have a discussion about it. Yeah, and Flo tends to post up a nice prompt to get everyone's brains kind of whirring. And then there's a a free writing session where you can write whatever you want. And yeah, it's a great way to kind of get yourself a bit more motivated, particularly if you're finding it difficult to focus at the moment and get a bit of of words down with some other people. It's quite a nice thing to do now, for us at least, now the weather's turning a bit, the nights are drawing in. Uh, There's not (laughs) much to do out and about outside, is there? So uh, I know I'm going to be trying to concentrate a bit more on maybe setting aside some time regularly, maybe weekly or something like that to get some words down on the screen. Yeah, definitely. And especially as various lockdown rules are coming and going and no one's ever quite sure what's going on. But we do know that we can connect with people all around the world and do some writing. How lovely. Uh, so on this show today, we are talking to Kate Summerscale, the creative nonfiction writer who has a new book out, which is The Haunting of Alma Fielding, a true ghost story. And she's talking to Chris all about that in a moment. Uh, but Steph, you've, you've read some of Kate's work, haven't you? I have, yes. So I think we had Kate, I think she came to Norwich a few years ago and she just released a book called The Wicked Boy, an infamous murder in Victorian London, which was a non-fiction book about a real crime that took place in the Victorian period. And I really, really enjoyed that, actually. It was a real, you know, when someone says a page turner, that's really, that book was really interesting. I really enjoyed it. So I'm really looking forward to reading this, not only because uh, I think Kate Summerscale is a great writer, but also a ghost story is absolutely up my street it's perfect for halloween as well it's such a fascinating period so it's set in the the kind of mid late 30s mm. and it mixes this increase in poltergeist activity and in interest in ghosts and what they called back then the supernormal mm. with simultaneously you have all the events going on in europe so you've got the rise of hitler and the, the looming world war ii plus the, the trauma that everyone was still feeling from World mm-hmm. War One, and how that was kind of manifesting in a lot of ghost stories and people mm-hmm. kind of connecting with the supernatural as a, a kind of way to try and deal with some of the, the issues that were still in society from the First World War and the, the increase of tension of what everyone kind mm-hmm. of knew was coming. And you know, back then, you didn't have things diagnosed properly so ptsd and shell shock weren't properly recognized and people instead were turning to seances to kind of deal with some of this uh, undiagnosed trauma and anxiety it sounds properly fascinating so yeah i'm looking forward to checking it out but chris has already read it and talked to kate all about it as well as her approach to research and how she stumbled upon this story in the first place and kind of tracked it down and had to do her own detective work to try and find out about the truth behind the stories and what was real and what wasn't and yeah it's it's a fascinating little tale right up my street yeah right so let's hand over to chris gribble having a chat with kate just a few days ago it's wonderful today to be able to talk to kate summerscale who is an award-winning writer whose first book the queen of whale key won a somerset mourn award and was shortlisted for the whitbread biography award 
and whose suspicions of Mr. Witcher or the murder at Road Hill House won many prizes, including the Galaxy British Book of the Year and the Samuel Johnson Prize for nonfiction. And you may well have come across it as a TV drama. It was absolutely compelling. Her last book, The Wicked Boy, was shortlisted for the CWA Gold Dagger for nonfiction and was the occasion for, I think, your last physical visit to Dragon Hall when I had the pleasure of interviewing you for an event as part of our Noirich Crime Writing Festival that we hold in partnership with UEA. Um, I'm really sorry that we're not both in the splendour of our medieval merchants hall today. I'm not that sorry because it's quite cold in there. The heating's been broken this week. It's probably good that we're all warm in our separate places. But I am really pleased to be able to talk to you once again, Kate, just days after the really exciting news that The Haunting of Alma Fielding, a true ghost story, your new book, has been shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize, which was, of course, a Samuel Johnson Prize back in the day. So it's a return to you. Yes, a great um, surprise and a very happy one to be shortlisted again for that prize, which made such a difference to me and, and my life, really, when, when I won it um, 12 years ago now. So, yes, happy memories. <laughs> we will come back to the kind of the, uh, the prizes as a phenomenon and what they do for writers' careers uh, later on in the interview, I'm sure. But, um, I, you know, I, I loved Alma, uh, The Haunting of Alma Fielding. Um, it's been described variously as a detective novel wrapped up in a ghost story, wrapped up in historical record. Um, and it's all of those things and more. It offers a really interesting um, historical um, psychological or psychoanalytical insights, uh, class insights, insights around society, both in the 1930s and also today, it, it packs a huge amount into, into, its, into its body. So could I ask you by starting to tell us a little bit about the haunting of Alma Fielding and how you came to this incredible story? I came across the story in a book by the ghost hunter, Nandor Fodor, who investigated the case. Uh, the book was published in the 1950s, it's now out of print, uh, but the events that, that are described there took place in 1938. And I was very in, intrigued by the investigation that Fodor described. It, it started with a Croydon housewife called Alma Fielding, who called the papers in February 1938 to report that she had a poltergeist in her house. And when the press hurried to the scene, um, the newspaper men reported that they too saw and, and heard weird events in the house, which they, they rapidly wrote up for the Sunday pictorial to be published the next day. So it was front page news at the same time that um, also on the front pages was, was Hitler uh, delivering threatening speeches uh, to the, in, in Germany. So it was a, a very sort of heightened moment in England and um, the poltergeist was kicking off. <laughs> it was a real coming together of kind of history, press and fashion and kind of the, in, the interest in, um, in, in the supernatural or the... Um, Supernormal, I think it was also called at the time. Is that right? Yeah. So the um, Nandor Fodor, he would refer to his field of study as the study of the supernormal, uh, being because they didn't want to say that that um, these extraordinary events were in any way not part of the natural scheme of things, but that they were just unusual and not yet explained, but that they might be. Uh, dictated by physical laws that were just uh, imperfectly understood. And he uh, was a psychical researcher or ghost hunter at the International Institute for Psychical Research in London, which was one of many such organisations that had sprung up in the 20s and 30s to look into the seeming explosion of supernatural events in Britain. And, and that explosion, you know, it was really widespread. The kind of psychics, mediums and reports, particularly of poltergeists and other sort of um, phenomena were really sort of rampant at the time. It came as a surprise to me. I had associated seances and psychics and so on more with the late 19th century. But it turned out that after the a huge loss of life in the First World War and indeed in the flu pandemic afterwards, uh, that, that seances became very popular and widespread throughout the country. 
Uh, they were a place for people to try to contact their lost loved ones. And uh, I, I imagine they also served as a kind of therapeutic support group where people could gather together and, and remember the dead. Um, but so, but yeah, seances really to, took off spiritualism, all became big business, and with it, more sightings of ghosts, more investigations into pre pre premonition, telepathy, levitation, clairvoyance, and all the associated feats that, um, that, that people were sort of claiming for themselves or, uh, or, or trying to prove. Yeah, I think you describe it at some point as uh, there was a sense that the divide between the living and the dead had been thinned by the recent war and the anxiety about the coming impending war. Yeah, I'd, I love there was a, a description by one prominent spiritualist, a man called Sir Oliver Lodge, who was one of the pioneers, inventors of radio, to give you some sense of the overlap between the scientific and the psychical. Um, and he talked about it. Um, it was as if the living and the dead were tunneling towards each other. And sometimes you could hear distantly uh, the, the sort of strikings of their axes, as if there would be some revelatory moment when the tunnel broke through and the two sides were, were together. And, um, and so people really sort of hoped for a, for a genuine reunion uh, in many cases with, with people they'd lost. And I think that, that, it, that it's a wonderful sort of image and it really hits at the heart of the hopefulness, perhaps, at the heart of some of this belief that there, there would be a way of kind of um, addressing that grief and loss that the population had suffered through the First World War, through the Spanish flu pandemic, funnily enough, another epidemic or pandemic at the time and the impending uh, kind of war. There was a, you, when you mentioned the science and the psychic crossover, there was also a a crossover with the media as well, who were very keen to cover this. You already mentioned the journalists turning up at Alma's house and the public is almost like a feeding cycle between the three parts. Yeah, the, yeah, it's true. I mean, I think the um, I became very interested in the way that there was this just sort of traumatic memory of the of the last war, which was, after all, only you know twenty years earlier. So most people living still had memories of it, um, but also the dread of the next war and the way that both a hope of being reunited with the dead, but also a fear of the of another wave of, of tragedy and, and trauma coming at them, because by 1938, Hitler and Mussolini were in the pages of the newspapers almost every day. And there was, um, and so the press was reporting avidly on that, but at the same time reporting on these supernatural events taking place in people's homes, as if the the, the ghosts and the poltergeists were, uh, on, on one level, diversions. They were escapes from a very difficult reality, and on another level, they were ways of expressing grief and fear and anxiety without facing it head on. So I felt that the these supernatural events, as as they were reported, served all these purposes at once, both to to avoid and to express the the, the darker and, and more secret feelings of the British population, mm -hmm. which finds a really kind of interesting echo in the emerging field of psychoanalysis and Freud, who also plays a role. In, in, in the book, and I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, um, Fodor himself is a really interesting character because he sort of sat between that science and psychic boundary, the wanting to believe and the fearing that he didn't believe um, as well. He, he, has, he has an interestingly ambivalent role. Yes, I, lo I love Fodor as a, as a figure in all this because in some ways he was like a a, 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 ch a child longing to believe in magic mm. and wanting to communicate with, with his dead father um, and wanting just the wonder and amazement that he'd found in the books of his childhood. But in another way, he's so he really wanted to find a ghost. He wanted to prove the supernatural. He wanted to be a great pioneer in this field. But in another way, he was um, a mischievous, sceptical pragmatic man who hadn't actually had much in the way of supernatural experience himself 
And um, to his dismay, every time he went out to try and catch a ghost, he ended up unmasking some dodgy medium. <laughs> and, uh, and so he was, he was a man of some sort of integrity as well as a, a sort of slightly desperate hopefulness about, um, about finding this decisive piece of evidence that would transform everything and make his name and prove magic existed. Um, so, so I, I liked his his mixture of um, rigor and skepticism with with a sort of wonder. Yeah, and I, and you had to feel for him with his. He seemed to have a series of particularly kind of trying neighbours <laughs> who led him to believe that they were something phenomenal, and then turned out not to be. Yes, there was a ter- very his friend, um, an American called Mister Woodward, who. Uh, who insisted that he could uh, levitate flowers through the power of his mind and demonstrated this to Fodor and his family and other neighbours on several occasions before eventually Fodor realised that he was was lifting the flowers with the aid of some pieces of black thread purchased in Woolworths. (laughs) Undone by too much whisky. Yes, he was undone by whiskey. Mr. Woodward used to drink very heavily during his flower levitations. I'm not sure how he got away with it for quite so long. <laughs> there had to be some goodwill in there because it, it was unfortunately repeated a couple of times. Can I talk a little bit about um, the, the structure of, of the book? It's kind of bookended um, by your experiences in January and December 2017, kind of in a taxi in Cambridge, and it, which itself is a slightly sort of... Um, chilling and foreboding sort of experience that you had there but you were in January 2017 you were on the way to the I think it was the Society for Psychical Research rather than the International Institute for Psychical Research's archives in Cambridge and at that point you were chasing down references to Fodor in this case and could you tell us a little bit about the point where you discovered the archive where the bulk of this of the research in the book came from and how that felt? Yeah, was I'd, um, I started, as I said, with Fodor's book, but I wanted really to have some more of the sort of primary sources for the investigation of Alma. Um, and I, I looked up his name in various uh, catalogues, online catalogues of archives, and I found that there were uh, references to him, as you say, in the Society for, for Psychical Research Archive in Cambridge. But this had been a rival organisation to his one. So I imagined that there were just letters exchanged between him and his um, sort of counterparts in that in the other organisation. But I was obviously very curious to see that. And I had heard, um, I'd read on the internet that the his, his own organisation, the International Institute, had, that had closed down in the 1940s and all its papers had already been destroyed by German bombs. So I, when I went to the Cambridge Archive, I was absolutely amazed on ordering the papers to discover that they were the original International Institute files, mm-hmm. which the SPR must have acquired in some way. They were donated or purchased and um, they'd been, they hadn't been catalogued very clearly as such. And in fact, the file on Alma Fielding had been filed as a file on Mr. Fielding, which had um, sort of misled, you know, I ordered it just in case it was relevant and found it was absolutely the source for everything I wanted to write about. So it was, a, <laughs> it was an amazing moment. And not just that, but the file was full of, it didn't just have... Um, notes about the case but full transcripts of seances interviews and photographs of the objects that Alma materialized an x-ray scan of her body so it was a really um it was a great sort of visual um source as well as uh, as, as well as giving me all these you know hundreds of pages of, of words from which to work because the sheer amount of detail must have been astounding yeah, overwhelming at times. <laughs> mm. Yes. Yeah, I have a vague sort of mental picture of you kind of high fiving the air and doing a lap of victory around the <laughs> archive as you opened the file. And was it exactly like that, or were you just quietly satisfied? 
Oh, I was very, um, I, they, were, they were more sort of like internal high fives, exactly. I think, rather than expressed in the heart of the manuscripts room. But I, um, but yes, I was absolutely like, wow, you know, it felt like uh, some sort of um, serendipity of a, of a very special kind uh, and, and really unexpected. Fantastic. And we'll, we'll come back to the kind of that wealth and or the amount, perhaps overwhelming amount of detail and how you sort of wrestled that into into the book, because it must have been a real task of editorial and curatorial challenge to do that. I, I want to sort of go back to Alma, really, and kind of perhaps the ghost story and detective story element of, of the book. And what was really special, it, it seems, about her was the the kind of the convincing nature of the poltergeist activity and also the uh, her production of objects, the uh, how she made manifest these objects in seances. Could you talk a, a little bit about that and that tension between the, the kind of the supernatural and the and the detective work that Fodor did to try and assess how genuine Alma was? Yeah, the, to, to begin with, they went down to her house in Croydon and recorded all the apparently supernatural events that took place there. It was a very, very busy day of um, poltergeist activity that Fodor and his colleagues recorded. And the poltergeist in the house was very um, violent and sort of things were being thrown around. Once they invited her to the Institute for further investigation, um, to try to develop her psychic powers because everyone thought that the poltergeist was in some way connect attached to her. Mm-hmm. There she started producing these, um, not destructive, but sort of miraculous phenomena so that she would seem to pluck from thin air pieces of jewellery, shards of ancient pottery, and eventually even uh, living creatures, a bird, a mouse. And... Fodor and his colleagues were astonished, but they they needed to be properly sceptical and rigorous too. So she underwent um, various checks. She'd be watched very closely, but she would also be strip searched um, before the sessions and then sewn into complete sort of body stockings where and um, she would be accompanied to the ladies room in, in the tea break and so on so they kept a very um, they kept an eye on her and they they really could not figure out how on earth she could be faking um, or, or doing conjuring tricks given the very close checks that, that were placed on her and this went on over weeks in 1938 you know through March into April and May right through to June. Yeah, I mean, and, and it was a is a fascinating sort of part of the story the the degree to which she was able to maintain that apporting and that kind of and production of objects right the way throughout the whole examination and observance she was put under. Yeah, um, and it was it became you know Fodor both he he took beca- took up a very sort of strange relation to her in a way because he was her champion. A mentor, he had a lot invested in proving the the truth of her magic powers. But at the same time, in order to prove it, he had to be her sort of persecutor and spy and try mm. to catch her out. So he'd lay traps for her. They'd he'd send people to sort of track her movements in Croydon to see if she'd been up to anything dodgy, sort of purchasing objects to produce in the séance room. So he. He was all things in a way, and um, there was a very strange and, to me, interesting power dynamic between the two of them of, of who was manipulating who or um, who was believing in who. Yes, there was there was a degree of kind of mutual reliance um, that kind of grew up between them that provided a fascinating dynamic. I yeah. think one of the really impressive things about um, Nando Fordo's work was how he... He wasn't sidetracked by that element of the phenomena that he was witnessing, but he focused on the poltergeist as a phenomenon and found through that a kind of key with the emerging work around psychoanalysis to, to describe what where this these phenomena might be coming from for Alma. It was a, re- a remarkable sort of joining up of two divergent sciences, wasn't it? 
Yes, and he wasn't very popular among his colleagues for making these connections. So even when he became suspicious of some of Alma's activity in the seance room and the objects that she produced, he still um, was was convinced that there was something real going on and unconscious with the poltergeist activity in her house. And he started to wonder whether the the real physical phenomena might be um, created by the force of a repressed idea, of a buried trauma, um, of a shock in childhood that might manifest itself externally like a like a projected fantasy, fear or idea. Mm-hmm. And um, this was obviously in total opposition to the, the creed of spiritualism, which believed that uh, supernormal events were caused by the spirits of the dead returning in order to communicate with the living, to to pass on messages or warnings or express their unhappiness. But Fodor started to think something different, to think that maybe ghosts were creations of the unconscious minds of the living, not nothing to do with the dead. Yes, there's a wonderful uh, phrase, uh, self-haunting, which sort of really struck me in mm. the book as a, a really sort of powerful metaphor for for what might be going on with Alma. Yes, yes, he thought that she might be uh, like two people in one, a sort of dissociated self that was expressing itself through the poltergeist who he named Jimmy <laughs> and uh, and that some some sort of rage as as well as um, confusion and and grief was expressing itself through these phenomena. Because he was reaching towards a lot of subject matters and areas, which although Freud was talking about in terms of early kind of childhood developmental sexuality, um, he Freud himself wouldn't get as far almost as you know, around the reality of childhood abuse and trauma and how we deal with that in terms of self-fragmentation that Fodor was reaching for with this analysis. Yeah. And as it happened, Fodor, one of the other people in the um, in- International Institute who had a great influence on, on him was a woman called Elizabeth Seven, who had been treated mm-hmm. by the psychoanalyst uh, Sandor Ferenzi in Budapest, who formulated these ideas of trauma, which are still, which are with us now, but at that point in the 1930s, had not been published in English, had no real purchase in the world. So these were really raw ideas that um, Fodor was discussing with the, with the woman who had helped inspire the ideas in Ferenzi. And it was fascinating to me that all this was bubbling under in this Institute for Psychical Research, which was really very radical and revolutionary psychoanalytic theory that 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 has held, that has had a, a big influence in, in the second half of the 20th century and beyond. Our ideas of PTSD, post-traumatic shock and so on are, are, are quite closely uh, rooted in Ferenzi's ideas, which were themselves rooted in his treatment of shell-shocked soldiers uh, in the mm. First World War. It's a really fascinating sort of set of potential links there that you can start to see kind of tracking back to that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the idea that maybe it started, I started to think that maybe, maybe what was going on in seances and with some psychics and mediums, as with the shell-shocked soldiers, um, might well be, be expressions of these, um, these psychologically fragmented states. So mm-hmm. when mediums spoke in voices of other people, when they went into a trance and seemed to be possessed by spirits, um, it, it was a very um, beguiling idea that, that this could be traced back to the, this kind of psychic shock that Ferenzi talked about and that Fodor was so intrigued by. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a fascinating um, class aspect to it as well that you really bring forward brilliantly in terms of, uh, you know, these these were not country house ghosts bearing arms and holding a head under their arm. These were working class people who were, were kind of finding kind of violent expressions of some sort of psychological trauma. And the, the, the mediums were nearly all working class women or kind of lower middle class women and the men suffering from shell shock, obviously, with the majority of them were working class. It's a really interesting element of the story. 
Yeah, so sort of like if you think about people finding a, a means of expressing very dark and experiences when they don't have access to sort of writing novels or painting paintings mm. or creating music. So if they're not from the educated uh, or moneyed classes, then maybe these manifestations might be some kind of equivalent. Um, and, and yeah, I did the poltergeist in particular. It was sort of hilarious to see how they were described in the press in the 1930s. They were, they were really sort of common ghosts, you know, they were, they were sort of trashy gangster like ghosts who threw things around and were vulgar and uncouth, uh, rather than the wraiths who used to float about stately homes in a kind of benign and uh, atmospheric way. Yeah, they're so, like the cavaliers. Yes, exactly. So I kind of, uh, I, I, I was charmed by this idea that there was this new type of ghost on the scene. And it was a suburban ghost, it was a Woolworths ghost, it was a sort of rude and disruptive ghost. And that idea that, that these ghosts in the 20s and 30s, that some of them were transgressive, in the ter in class terms and in gender terms, that they were making a lot of noise, literally, mm. uh, for people who shouldn't re really be be making all this noise, which should be more deferential. Um, it seemed to me that, like, at some level, it was an outburst of uh, of of, of social rebellion. Yeah, it struck me. Um, you know, that they, they, they were almost like sort of rude and disrupt versions of familiars or. Um, kind of that kind of yeah. figure that would walk alongside if you know we see them everywhere now in kind of Philip Pullman and all sorts of other places but you know that they have a structural role in in kind of in the supernatural yeah sure Alma's poltergeist was in a way her familiar you know her alter ego her disruptor self allowing her to remain an apparently compliant and um people pleasing you, you know, lower middle class woman, uh, but but then she had this wild um, wild companion, mm. and it also helped Fodor sort of unlock that really interesting, diverse, troubled past that she had with all of the skills and talents that she'd had to give up, and all of the sacrifices and losses that she'd had. Yes, so she, in a way, the the ghost sort of served his purpose in that he drew the um, that that she did she did one one way and another get her story written. You know, I sort of read about it in Fodor's book and, and then in the files in the institute. In a way that, without this weird uh, disruption in her life in 1938, we we would no, know none of this about her. Mm, mm. And also, it's it sort of. It allowed her to accrue a degree of social prestige that lifted her out of that kind of cycle of suffering that she seemed to be in. Yes, she did. She got, um, I mean, she literally was being paid by the Institute to, so she had a job of sorts. Um, she also, she got out of Croydon every day and, and went up to, well, twice a week and went up to South Kensington, just behind Harrods, the International Institute was. And she communed with sort of foreign countesses and, mm. uh, and you know, educated ladies and gentlemen with uh, imaginative ideas about how the world worked and who were full of admiration for her. So it was very, very sort of giddy-making, I think, in a way. It was a, it was a marvellous um, elevation and escape, but quite a scary one too, because they were all watching her and often trying to catch her out as well as admiring her. So the stakes were, were very high. Mm, those conscious elements of her kind of activity must have caused a huge amount of anxiety. Yes, I imagine so. Mm -hmm. um, but you say, yes, yeah, so in terms of her social prestige, also in the house, which she shared with her husband, Les, and a lodger called George, to whom she was very close, as well as um, her and Les's son, she, um, she acquired a kind of power there because, mm -hmm. you know, this, this violence and disruption was um, emanating from her. And so uh, she, she became, I think, a much more dominant figure in, in the home and with her friends who were a little bit scared of being around her and what might happen. You know, there was a, a feeling of, of danger that, um, that, were, that was also a kind of power that, that, that accrued to her. And, and, you know, despite the kind of the vicissitudes of the story and the complexities that it unleashed, it did in some ways give her 
freedom later in her life to move between her home and other places in a in an interesting way. Yeah, I think. I mean, I did. I found um, after reading Fodor's book, I first had to find out her real name because uh, he had disguised her identity and, and that of the rest of the family. And I then did find out. Uh, I met her grandson in Devon and found out what became of her after the investigation because Fodor's book ends in 1939 mm-hmm. when, when he left England. And um, and yeah, I found she moved. She moved to Devon. Les gave her a lot more freedom in the marriage. She seems to have bit they had quite an open marriage thereafter, and she continued to dabble in the supernatural, but she um, also got work in the war as a nurse. So the poltergeist and the and the war between them and the move to Devon sort of unlocked some something, and perhaps Fodor's um, sort of accidental psychoanalysis of her as well not accidental but you know maybe there was something um relieved in her let's say and she did seem like a woman um, on the edge of breakdown or having a breakdown in 1938 and um and after that i was i was happy to discover that that didn't recur Mm -hmm. she um she lived a, a fairly long full life um with no further uh terrors I felt a, a kind of a large degree of affection towards her towards the end when she appeared to be quite an irascible older lady. <laughs> yes, yes, I think she was. Um, that she made lots of people rather wary, and I, I thought um, that. But I, I noticed Fodor had enjoyed that in her, her sense of her mischief and her disturbance. Almost, he found it interesting, and in that spirit, I sort of thought, you know, she. I suppose that by scaring people or unnerving people by her behaviour, she continued to express the the unease that she still felt in herself and that sometimes those people who make us feel uncomfortable, they are somehow communicating um, a, a kind of disturbance at a lower level than mm-hmm. having a poltergeist, but sort of in the same, in, in the same spirit in, in a way. And I did feel fond of her and thought, you know, she, she's a, a great survivor and, and a woman of, of great sort of um, resilience and, and imagination and nerve, you know. Yeah, someone who could really change the atmospherics literally in a room. Yeah, a powerful person, yeah. 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 Going back to that moment in the archive when you sort of uh, you found all of this material, did you know immediately that Alma was going to, Alma and Fodor would be your subject? And did you know how you would do that when you first discovered the material? Well, um, no, I didn't know how I would do it, but I did know that the, the relationship between the two of them was was key to the story, and um, that that was the thing that that would uh, ground it. And I I wasn't uh, from the outset. I I didn't I wasn't driven by the desire to find out whether or not the poltergeist was real mm-hmm. or whether or not supernatural things really happened. I liked the story and I liked Fodor precisely because he wanted to get at what it all meant, you know, what it all ex- expressed or said. And he he almost wanted to read the supernatural happenings rather than... And it, it happened to be his job to have to also work out whether they were true or not. And, of course, I was interested in that. But, um, but I was interested in sort of beyond that and what you can continue to derive from events like this, which are sort of... Um, they're almost like short stories or fictional events in the real world to me um, so how you can um, make what, what they can yield what they can tell you about people's emotional lives and maybe not just an, the individual's emotional life but a national mood and anxiety or a historical atmosphere Yes, there. I mean, there's a really kind of palpable sense of the mo- the historical moment that you give in that 1938-1939 period through the book. How how careful do you have to to be when you're sort of marshalling the the facts of that research against the narrative that you create? Well, I think I, but the way I operate, I always sort of keep try to keep the narrative to in the in the foreground, and it's almost like reversing the normal thing where the important events take place in the foreground and the trivia's at the edges. It's like uh, flipping, inverting that, so that this apparently 
silly story <laughs> about a poltergeist and a woman in Croydon and an eccentric ghost hunter uh, instead becomes a thing I take very seriously and um, and that is driving the thing forward and then almost off stage this, the um, sort of international and national events are taking place like Hitler's invasion of Austria and um, but but it's not just to give a bit of context or colour. As I write them, I'm trying to work out what, how they connect to the story I'm telling and why, I've see, why I'm picking on these particular fragments to drop in. They, mm. they kind of have to earn their place as shadows to my story, yes. even though they are these huge, you know, momentous world events that um, change things for, for millions of people. I need to make them pay... Uh, pay off as um, as as kind of motifs in in this very particular story I'm telling, and I hope that will in turn give some um, extra resonance to the story I'm telling. But I work out as I go along how these things fit together. I don't know in advance. Can I ask how how long it took you to, from the kind of archive point to the completion of your of the book? Um, three years. So I think there was at least a year of um, pretty much pure research, and then I'd start working out how to tell the story, how to structure it and put it together while continuing the research um, and going back and forth. It was, it, was a it was a really hard one to work out, actually, in terms of the, the shape of the book, the, the storytelling. Was there a moment that unlocked the final kind of structure for you? I think that, uh, that the, the more I edged, I kept, I kept redrafting, edging it more towards seeing things from Fodor's point of view. Mm -hmm. And although it's not exclusively from his point of view, the sort of grounding in seeing things as, as he would have seen them and the, therefore putting myself in that historical moment, um, but also... Uh, it just, just sort of getting getting your bearings from him because in a way he contained everything I wanted to explore were things that he wanted to explore. And although my perspective is different because I'm in a different historical moment, um, it, it, he really could kind of get me access to everything in, in a funny way. Mm. And I think realising that rather than um, than putting Alma, putting Alma's experience at the center, or, or being detached from both of you know, it was it was that um, often, yeah, it was the decision about the the perspective and point of view, and um, that that made it start to uh, work as a story. I think. I think that it's really fascinating because there's a really clear sense in which Fodor himself is transformed by the relationship whether it's therapeutic or psychological or investigative or between himself and Alma he, you know it changes his life as well yeah and I think I mean one of the the things that it, because he became so obsessed with the case and so frustrated with with it and her and with the obstructions of his colleagues as well he did he got quite sort of um sadistic towards Alma at some points further into the investigation and I think almost put her in, in danger, psychological danger, by the amount of pressure he was placing on her. And um, he was eventually expelled from the Institute, after which he, his wife approached Freud, um, as he mentioned, who was, who was living in London at the time. And then he became, uh, when Frodo left England, he became a psychoanalyst, so he switched from being a psychical researcher to a full-blown psychoanalyst, but still with a special interest in the supernatural. And he said after he regretted the um, some of the methods he'd used as a as a ghost hunter, um, yeah. and uh, I think that he, he, he you know, so he, he he changed, he sort of swiveled from one perspective to another, but it was quite a a, a natural evolution in a way. And um, and he he felt some um, sh shame, I think, at what he'd been drawn into by the pursuit of ghosts, mm. and kind of the potentially 
small irony that had it not been for his wife kind of taking the manuscript to Freud to get what would turn out to be critical sort of backing for his reading and analysis, you know, that, that platform might not have been there for him to transform his career in that way. Yes. I mean, Fodor seemed, he was a very bold um, figure with a lot of uh, uh, sort of liveliness and nerve about him himself. But after his expulsion from the Institute, I think he was really broken and depressed. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he didn't dare. His wife suggested he take his study of Alma Fielding to Freud um, in his house in Hampstead. And he, did, he, he was too sort of beaten to, to do so. He was afraid. And so his, um, his wife, Irene, did it herself. And uh, amazingly, Freud, who was very, very ill at the time, read the um, read the study and wrote to Fodor sort of endorsing it, at which point Fodor's sort of mood was transformed. And I think he that set him on course to to go to New York and, and become a psychoanalyst. She was one of several women um, around Fodor without whom he kind of perhaps wouldn't have been the person he was at all. Yeah, yes, indeed. There was, I mean, Alma for a start, most yeah. obviously. Um, but yes, he had a, a, um, a friend and sidekick called Eileen Garrett, Fodor, who, who exorcised haunted houses with him. And she was rather an amazing woman. Tremendous. Who, yeah, who was very open to um, psychological explanations of her psychic gifts. And then another, um, and then Elizabeth Seven, who I mentioned, who was the psychoanalyst who was interested in the supernormal, who introduced him to ideas about trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he so he was. Uh, I mean, uh, he very he enjoyed the company of women, and um, he was not. He seems not to have been subject to the usual the condescensions of of his time. No, <laughs> no. of course, and the wealthy women around the institute, the countess and others who funded the work. Yes, yes, the countess who was um, sort of his almost his his equal as one of the leading lights at the institute. And who um, was very uh, influential in the in the investigation of Alma, and who felt a great sort of compassion and affinity with Alma, having the Countess having had some supernatural experiences herself, and she she was a very interesting figure, sort of a, a writer um, and a, a, a painter, and she um, who later went on to be a translator of T. S. Eliot's poetry. I love the way. Some of these people at the institute, another of Fodor's um, assistants, Laurie Evans, became the theatrical agent to Laurence Olivier in various other luminaries. There was something quite theatrical um, and performative about a lot of, of what went on at the institute. It was part science, part vaudeville. Yeah, I, I was strangely, and it's probably not very accurate, but I was reminded of kind of the role, the current role of reality television and how you get all of this kind of this crucible, which some people kind of come through and emerge into glittering other areas, but it's all in this really weird, <laughs> unlikely place. Yes, yes. No, that's a very good analogy. And it was, yes, it's a sort of hyper real environment where anything's possible yeah. and everyone, and yes, people are being closely watched as Scripted they are. reality. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Coming back to the, the practicalities again and coming back to the prize, to the shortlisting um, of the book, could you kind of tell us a little bit about what prizes, what prizes do in writers' careers and what your experience of them have been? Because it's, it's a really sort of tricky area about kind of judging books, of course, but they do play a practical role in the world of writers. Yes, I think, um, I mean, it's just, it's always really lovely to be, um, picked out on a, for a long list or short list, or even better to win a prize, but but it, because it feels um, like some kind of validation, honor, and it's fun. It makes um, and it feels it's different from sales. It's different from reviews. It it feels like something special. Mm-hmm. But it's all. But I know because I've been a judge on on prizes that actually the whole thing is is slightly absurd and random. That it, it do, being on a shortlist for a prize does mean that there's that some people really really liked, maybe even loved your book, but it doesn't actually. You can't you can't really measure things like books against each other in any really meaningful way. It doesn't mean your book is better 
than another book. It's just an expression of of um, informed enthusiasm, you know, some mm-hmm. for, for highly qualified people who know about books, really loved your book. It, that just feels brilliant. But it's um, the, the fact it's sort of dressed up in in the in this kind of formal way sort of disguises the fact that it's just is really utterly subjective <laughs> and kind of, and. Uh, uh, but but delightful. It's really it's such a help. Um, obviously, if, if there's money goes along with it, that's a, a really practical help uh, early in your career or at any point in a writing career, which is never a, an easy, um, lucrative line of work to follow. Mm. Um, but also just the feeling of 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 being prized, of your book being prized, of it being held in affection by a group of people, of your peers is incredibly um, warming and validating and encouraging for, for just for you to carry on with it. Yeah. And winning that Samuel Johnson Prize, um, which was a, a big prize, uh, that was really um, enormously uh, re- sort of supportive to, to me in my decision to, to carry on writing um, because I had previously until I'd, I had had a sort of office job until I gave it up to write this one book and I had every expectation that I'd have to find another office job and then that prize helped me think, well, maybe not. Mm. Maybe, I, maybe I can just be a writer, you know, which is a fantastic thing. And you've, you've now sort of um, kind of sat down at your desk five or six times in front of a set of materials and kind of made the decision to start and create a book out of them what what would be your sort of your golden nuggets of advice for people who you know we we work with a lot of people who are kind of um, about to plunge in or in the early stages of creating books and particularly sort of um creative non-fiction memoir and biography perhaps what would be your key advice to them at that point about to start um just get stuff down i mean i think the reason that i write non-fiction is because of the sort of fear that because you can accidentally fill some blank pages because you're just taking notes <laughs> from other books and um and so you get over that initial self-consciousness or or block about committing anything or, you know knowing why anything's worth writing or imagining so i i find just getting a really bad draft down um, just some paragraph, say chapter. Uh, having done that, and then you start. Then the, the fun starts, which is tinkering with it, uh, moving things around, playing with different ideas of structure and what order to put things in, making sentences better, um, sort of rethinking things. You know, all of that I enjoy. But the the initial bit of just starting to write I, I do not enjoy and I just have to almost shut my eyes and 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 you know, just do anything and not worry about whether it's good just that it's there <laughs> well that's absolutely fantastic Kate thank you so much for joining us today for the writing life podcast um, I can't recommend um, the haunting of Alma Fielding a true ghost story enough it really is does have those kind of detective novel ghost story historical records wrapped up in it but it's also kind of a kind of a multi-leveled portrait both of that era and and a mirror to our to some of our the aspects of our current society and I found it an immensely rewarding book to read so thank you very much for writing it and for coming on today to talk about it. Oh well thank you so much it's been really fun. Thanks to Kate and Chris for that fantastic chat. If you have any questions about that or want to get in touch with us, you can join our Discord community or find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers' Centre, find our Facebook page, or indeed sign up to our newsletter over at the website, which is nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. If you find yourself with a spare moment today, please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you.